Um, as many of you uh, know who've uh, maybe known me for a little while, when I was growing up as a teenager, I worked at a grocery store called Foodland. And uh, Foodland was a dude land. And uh, we had a guy that I worked with, and we affectionately referred to him as Problem Child. Called him Problem Child because he was always getting into problems. And we uh, had a job that we would always get him to do and uh, was facing the shelves. And um, facing the shelves means you go around and you turn every single can, every single product so that they're all lined up perfectly. It, it was, for all intents and purposes, busy work. It was the kind of thing you did when there was nothing else to be doing. But we always gave that job to Problem Child because Problem Child was always getting into problems. So we would give him busy work all the time. Hey, uh, we uh, Problem Child, go, go face the shelves because it was a way of keeping him out of trouble. And uh, when we come to God's word, there is no command in scripture that's just busy work to keep us out of trouble. Um, God's word doesn't, there's nothing in it that just sort of relates to us as these sort of arbitrary commands. We don't, as Christians, we don't just live lives, you know, sort of ascribing to these divine standards for no apparent reason. Uh, Absolutely everything that God calls us to do, all of the ways in which he calls us to live, are essentially aligning us into congruence with what God considers to be reality. We were made in his image. He wants us to flourish in his image. And therefore, all of the wise guidance of scripture, all of God's law is for human flourishing, is for our flourishing as his children and uh, calls us into congruence of who we were ultimately uh, created to be. It brings us into reality. We've been going through a series on perseverance and patience and peace so that we could garner strength in these really difficult, frustrating days that we're living in. And we're coming towards uh, the end of uh, 1 Peter, which is the letter that we've been studying And we're going to look at it to see how the wise guidance of God's word will lead us into flourishing, lead our hearts and our minds into flourishing. And ultimately, um, we're coming to God's word every Sunday so that it will lift our hearts again, like little kids who uh, laugh and giggle when their dad does something that just makes them smile. We, like God's children, are coming to him and we're saying, God, would you do it again? Do it again, dad, do it again. Lift our hearts uh, with the gospel, the good news that never gets old. So we're going to look this morning at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 18 just to give context for the rest. And then I'm going to read chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they did not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now this morning, as we look at this text, um, I'm going to break it up into two sections, and, and we'll look at this. Firstly, the love-shaping power of the gospel over sin. And then secondly, the outworking of the gospel is a life of love and integrity. So firstly, this love-shaping power of the gospel over sin. The text starts out here, and it says that Christ died once for sin. And once for sin, um, in the Greek, is hapas. Once meaning never needing repetition again. The, the use of this word, once for sin, is meaning perpetual vi- validity. And so when, when the Bible says to us that Christ died once for sin, it's not like he uh, saw that we were in great debt, paid that credit card bill, got the balance to zero, and then says, now go live a life of, of uh, obedience and imitation uh, and just make sure that that balance remains at zero. Don't continually get into debt. Uh, whereby we are saved by our continual obedience. That's a religious, underway, uh, that's a religious understanding uh, of Christianity for those of you who are exploring faith this morning. Christian faith is not that Jesus Christ got our balance to zero and then we sort of continually live these lives of incre- incremental obedience installments to keep it at zero. It's once and for all. It means that as we are uh, going through our lives and struggling with sin and all Christians falter you know, and, and, and struggle and fall into sin, that Christ's sacrifice was one and done, once and valid for all. And that is radical. It's undeserved. It's scandalous. But the importance of it, the reason why it's so critical for us to understand is because it frames the way that we think about judgment. This is a passage that gets into judgment, talking about Christ the King who will come back and judge the living and the dead. That they're in the end of all of human existence. The teleology of, of all human life is that it's going to, it's going to end with um, this judgment. And so how do we think about that judgment? Well, if Christ paid, paid the debt for sin for all of us who place our faith in him in this way, Hapas peri amarton in the Greek, once and for all, right? Then that means there's there's no fear of judgment day, because Christ has quite literally taken our judgment day. So why is Peter bringing this in? This church has been suffering; they're going through hard times. The suffering is getting worse because, of course, they're under Rome, and we all know where that went. No place good. So what is he doing by talking about Christ's judgment <clears throat> with a suffering church? Is he piling on? Um, what does Peter believe? Uh, is going to happen here. What does he expect that the belief in divine judgment is going to do in the church? Well, as we see how this text unfolds, we see that belief in divine judgment doesn't make us fearful. It doesn't make us fixated on how we're doing. It actually makes us loving and integrous, focused on how our neighbor is doing. And so then Peter boldly calls them to leave behind their self-centered, sinful lives in order to live these outward-facing loving lives. And when you get to verse three, the text says, you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do. And so this list of sins that's listed here, Peter fully expects that the people in that church have participated in these things. 
he's not pulling you know random examples out of the, the air. He knows uh, where they came from and what they've been doing, and so he lists it. And um, the significance of this, of course, is that it's quite the, it's quite this incredible list. And whenever the New Testament gives these these lists. Here's one here, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, detestable idolatry. First of all, it's, it's, it's specific to, to that church, but we should ought to be reflective uh, today as today's church. That list is not exhaustive. That list is intended for all uh, people throughout all time, God's children, to be reflective. And so we can't just simply look at it and be like, oh, okay, well, as long as I haven't done anything on this list, we're fine. And so you didn't have an orgy uh, this week, dude, you're good. Okay, that's not how we look at it <laughs> because our sexual sin can be a lot far broader than that. Everything from sexual fantasy, Jesus extended sexual sin to the heart. He says, if you've thought about it and fantasized about it, you know, in your heart, you've essentially done it whether that's a form of pornography or any other form of sex that is outside of uh, uh, how the Bible describes the sexual context that God created, which is inside marriage between a husband and uh, his wife and that covenant promise of a lifelong commitment of future love. That's the context for sex. Now, of course, to the modern ear, that's totally offensive because we have views of sexuality that are uh, far and away, much broader than this. But notice the original context this was given in. Peter's writing to churches. He's like, hey, remember how last month before you were saved and you guys were having orgies? Yeah, so don't do that anymore, right? So like, it's not like the, it's not like this commentary on uh, sexuality became offensive in the last you know few decades. It was offensive the, the day it was penned. But what we learn about this is that there's a way that God sees reality, that we are being called into reality. And anything that is outside of how the creator of all things has orchestrated reality is going to be to our own detriment. It's going to be to our own hurt. Because, of course, the one who created us knows what will cause flourishing in us. And so he calls us to that. And that, So the sex, of course, is just one example here, but there's a long list. And as we are reflective on it, we can think about how, you know, you look at that phrase, detestable idolatry. And uh, if you think about it, um, there's really no such thing as acceptable idolatry, really. Although there's lots of forms of idolatry in our modern country, in our modern context, that we are very comfortable with. You know, to be a workaholic is total idolatry to either your own ego or money or a combination of the things or status or corporate ladder climbing, whatever. But if you are a workaholic, that is celebrated in this city. If you give up your life uh, to, you know, be the hardest working person who's putting in the most hours where you work, you get the busy badge. You're the winner, you know, and uh, that's just a very, very acceptable form of idolatry to kill ourselves and our family uh, for career uh, or for academia. And that is celebrated in our, in our culture. Another example would be um, greed and covetousness that can have insidi insidious forms. I mean, nobody would come out and say, I'm a greedy person, I'm a covetous person. But these sorts of things are sort of at work in our culture and they're totally acceptable to, uh, to constantly be uh, building a life that is just essentially we are surrounded in these walls of comfort so comfortable that we are just suffering is impenetrable to the kind of lives that we lead and to just kind of look at what look at what our neighbors are up to and accelerate our lives you know sort of bowing down and and uh, uh living in this covetousness or our way of surviving the last year of the pandemic is to just 
have those packages coming. Just keep the packages coming to the front door. The greed that nothing is ever enough. That there's not enough shiny toys. We could go, we could go on and on about this. But what Peter is doing is he's saying you gotta, you've got to uh, leave behind the self-centeredness and live this outward-facing life of love. The gospel has the power to reshape that. And then it's interesting because he says once you do make those radical changes, abuse gets heaped on you by those with whom you used to sort of participate in that, that lifestyle with. The immediate context, of course, would be, you know, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your uh, ideas around uh, sexuality are congruent with the culture, and then you say, no, actually, I'm going to align my life with how the Bible speaks about sexuality, um, and you forsake sexual relations if you're not a married person, for example, um, you could get abuse heaped on you, <laughs> where it's like, what, what is wrong with you? Why are you not functioning in a way that is most natural. I mean, this is how our city thinks about this. This is how our culture thinks about this. What is wrong with you? The abuse gets gets heaped on you. It's possible. Um, uh, but uh, when we look at this passage of uh, what the church is being called to, there's really interesting language that is being used here. There's this cause and effect power in the gospel. He says, therefore, you find that con- consistently throughout almost every New Testament letter, the because of the gospel, and the therefore, the cause and effect, this motivator. But then there's this interesting language that he uses, and he says not to simply uh, believe the gospel, but the apostle writes, arm yourself with the gospel, to be armed with it. Very interesting language. We're going to take a look at this uh, in a second. Since Christ therefore suffered in his body, arm yourself with that same thought. Arm yourself with what Christ has done. Arm yourself with who Christ is. Um, it's such an interesting uh, uh, use of language. And he says that if, if you arm yourself with the gospel, this good news, you'll be done with sin. What does it mean to be done with sin? It, it can't be uh, a life of no sin. We know the Romans 7, the Apostle Paul's like, I'm still struggling with my sin. I hate that I sin. It's like a civil war inside him about sin. Every single Christian you know, that you know, every single Christian in this church, starting with this preacher, we all struggle with sin. We all fall into sin. So what does it mean to be done with sin? It means you're done loving sin. You're done being attracted to sin. It's like you have this huge breakup with sin. Like it's over. We are never getting back together, like ever. You're done with sin. This is what it is. This, this, this hatred of the fact that we even do it, the struggle with it. And so because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because we believe that he lived the sinless life that we should be living but that we're not living, and he died this atoning death, and in the scandal of his grace, he dies once for your sin, meaning full stop, period, finished, Decided you've been saved by Christ's grace single-handedly, definitively. Because that is all true, well, now he's my king. Now he guides my life. Now he shapes my life. Now his word is the final defining authority on my life. Now his way of thinking about everything, whether it be sexuality or my career or the way that I use my spare time or the way that I engage in work, all of it now, because I love him, because I am blown away by his love and his grace, it has this realigning, recalibrating effect in my life. And so the apostle says, the text says, you've got to arm yourself with that. The Christian life 
it begins with belief in the gospel, but it continues by being armed with the gospel, by having this love-shaping power of the gospel. You know, a shield, it doesn't do you any good if you believe in it and you, you leave it at home and you go into battle without it. So what there's this picture of being armed with it as you're going through the challenges and the sufferings of life. He wanted it for that church. I want it for our church. What does it actually look like on the ground? Well, for example, if you're facing criticism um, or rejection, if you are not armed with the gospel, when I do not arm myself with the gospel and I'm facing criticism or rejection, I get defensive. My fragile ego gets bruised very easily. I get angry. There's a lot of, a lot of things that come out of my you know, the sinful corners of my heart when I'm not armed with the gospel. But when I have marinated in the goodness of Christ and I am mindful of Christ and I am actually armed with the gospel and I receive criticism and I receive rejection, um, I can actually respond quite uh, lovingly. I can be thoughtful about it because I'm not being, uh, because I'm not being, uh, you know, handcuffed by it. If you think about the next few months that are ahead of, uh, of all of us here, as there's con- constant <laughs> things in our news feeds about the third possible wave of COVID, the third waves, the fourth waves, the variant strands. <clears throat> what does this mean? What is, how is the government going to react? What if they make decisions, inevitably they will, that we don't think are you know, congruent with the decisions that we would have made if we <clears throat> were in positions of... Uh, uh, of uh, decision making. I mean, how do we react to all of that? Well, if we are not armed with the gospel, then we'll have an appointment on Sundays that we keep as we gather for church. But functionally, day to day, we're going to be just as worried and anxious and frustrated and angry. We're basically just going to echo the culture. But when we are armed with the gospel, then we can look at all of this, you know, upcoming news and all of the conversations without being crippled by worry. Because we are confident and convinced that our life is in God's hands. You know, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul refers to the gospel as power. Here, Peter is doing the same thing. That this good news of Jesus Christ, of what he has done, his death, his resurrection, they call that news, they call that power. And here we are being called to arm ourselves with that, <clears throat> with that power. So what does that all mean rather than just being spiritual language? Well, think about it practically. There's what's happening in your life right now. And then there's all of the meaning that you're associating with what's happening in your life right now. But then there is the gospel and what God and in his magnificence and in his reality, what his word says about what's happening in your life right now. And what we are being called into, what we're being invited into, is to say, I, I want to allow the loudest voice in my life, giving me a commentary on what I'm going through right now, not to be my own voice, not to be the culture voice, but to be the voice of my king, the one who loves me, the one who saves me, the one who died for me, and the one whose uh, hand my life is in. I want... God's voice to be the loudest voice so that it can have a reorienting power because news is power. News orients your heart and your mind for what you'll do next. Even when I made the announcement, you know, 
10 minutes ago and said, next Sunday we're meeting at Woodland, that news did something in all of you. You heard that and you said, oh, yes, because news is power. It has orienting power. So we're being called to arm, arm ourselves with it. In other words, preach, <laughs> preach it to ourselves. When you, you often think of preaching like what I'm doing, this process of study and writing and putting things together and then practicing it and then delivering. And you think of that as preaching. But to preach is to, it's just to proclaim, it's to herald. And all throughout the Psalms, we get a good example of David, you know, preaching the salvation of God to his own soul. Psalm 42, why downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. This is what it means to arm yourself with the gospel. I mean, you can go down the street and, uh, well, you used to be able to go down the street and buy books, but you can go online and you can buy a book uh, on self-talk. There's a million of them. Now you talk to yourself. And, and that's a very old idea. But what the scriptures are saying is, well, when you talk to yourself, which is a really good idea, whose words are you going to use? And the, well, the call is to arm yourself with the words of the Almighty God. Because the, the power for the Christians to do flows from what has been done. And so if we do not arm ourselves with what has been done, we are not going to have the ongoing power to do what the scriptures calls us to do, which is where the second half of this text flows, right? How do we live now? What does that look like? Play it out on the ground. Well, where does the power from that come from? Not just perpetually staring at a list of instructions and imperatives. There is no power. There's no lasting power in that. But in in loving the one who... uh, gave himself for us. This is what the text continually invites us to sort of marinate in. And as we, as we do marinate in the implications of God's love and his commitment to care for you and his commitment to provide for you and his commitment to give perfect grace and strength to you in your weakness, you will be done with cozying up to your sin. You'll be done with loving your sin. You will lose your appetite, you know, for your sin. Um, you know, that sin at, at, at the core, since Genesis 3, is saying, God is not as concerned about me as I am. God is not going to fulfill me uh, in a way that I can fulfill myself by making my own decisions. This is the core of all sin. It's, I don't know that I really need God or can trust God. I will sit in that seat myself and sit in the throne of my own heart and I will be my own God. That's the lie under every sin. Um, and so Peter is calling this church and, and I'm calling my church, he's saying, you know, you've got to abandon this old way of sort of curving in on yourself, the self-gratification of the day and of the age in order to sort of uh, feel fulfilled. You've got to turn from that. And so what we find is our incentive to live holy lives is not fear. Our incentive to live holy lives is we actually come to our senses. And when we come to our senses, we see the relentless love of Jesus and armed with the knowledge of that love, the sin that was once attractive, it just pales like an old chair that's fading in the sun and it's no longer compelling to our hearts because we've been reanimated. You know, in the words of Thomas Chalmers, it's that expulsive power of the new affection, like a defensive lineman jumping into a kiddie pool and displacing all the water. That's the power of the gospel as it comes into our lives. And so the motivation for this is not some ethical divine code. It's that we want to live to the glory of the one who loves us. We don't want to betray the one we love. We have a king who we love. So let's go to the final thing, which is uh, that we want to look at this morning, which is after we look, after we see that we're being called to um, sort of marinate in the power of this love-shaping gospel, the effect it has on our sin, 
You see then the text flows to say that the outworking of the gospel is this loving and integrous life. Verse 7, the text says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because when, when you hear the words, the end is near, what do you imagine? You imagine cartoons of people in the street with big signs on them that say the end is near. We picture crazy people downtown, you know, downtown on King Street shouting, you know, shouting into the air in a way that we think, oh my goodness, is this going to be helpful to anybody? The end is near. That's what we imagine. But look at, look at, what's, look at what actually happens in the life of a person who believes that the end is near. It says they're of sober mind. You know, when Jesus cast out a de- uh, the demons in a young boy, the Bible says that when the demons left him, he was of sober mind. This is the same language. It's there intentionally. It's like, I'm now seeing everything very clearly. I'm of sober mind. So what this is actually provoking is, if you don't live your life like the end is near, if you don't live your life like... Um, Life is a vapor and it's short and we're here today and we're gone tomorrow because life is short. If you don't live with awareness of that, that's actually crazy. But to be of sober mind is to recognize, now hold on a second. I am in the hands of the one who loves me. This has this quieting effect. I am in the, in the hands of the creator of all things. And so when he says the end is near, now live this way. Then you get this list, which we're going to look at in a minute. It's like he's saying, if you know the books are about to be audited, that's a crazy time to start a financial scandal, right? If you know you're getting married that, you know, this afternoon, then that morning is a really crazy time to have an affair. I mean, arguably, it's always a crazy time to have an affair. But you understand what he's saying? He's saying, if, if this thing is about to get wrapped up, why would you then do these do this sin and live this crazy way it's ludicrous so what does a person's life look like when they believe the end is near not awkward not hard to relate to not crazy it looks like love and integrity look at what it says the end is near be sober-minded and then it says love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If you speak, speak like it's the words of God. If you serve, do it with the strength that God, that, that God provides. Look at what he says. He's like, the end is near, but he's not run into the streets and shout like a crazy person. He's like, the end is near. Live a life of integrity and love. Use whatever gifts you have to care for others in the church community. Love your neighbor outside of the church community. Just be this blessing, be this person of, of great love uh, for others. And that is to be sober. To live in an imitation of Jesus Christ is to be sober-minded. You know, and it's not just, you know, the apostles here talking about the return. When, when you read the, through the Gospels, Jesus talked about his return all the time. And when Jesus talked about returning to judge the living and the dead, when this text talks about judging the living and the dead, sometimes as moderns, uh, and if you're on our, on our uh, call this morning and you're considering, you know, you're thoughtfully exploring Christian faith and you're like, this judgment thing is where you lose me. This is where the hang up is. You know, I like, these are the teachings of Jesus I like. I like the love your neighbor stuff, but all this judgment, I don't like that. So these are the these are sort of the timeless teachings of Jesus. And then these are the things that we kind of say, you know, that's sort of out of date. It's the ancient world. The Bible is millennia old. We're going to put that aside. I want to, I want to invite you to consider 
um, your presumptions when you think that way. When you look at the Bible and you say, this is timeless, this is dated, what you're really saying is your point of view is timeless and certainly not dated. You're coming at it from the position to say, these are the things that Jesus said and did that I'm willing to accept because they are congruent with my modern view and therefore they are timeless because incidentally everything I think is timeless. But these things that Jesus said about judgment, these things are not timeless because I'm very uncomfortable with them and therefore they are out of date and therefore they need revision. You see, G.K. Chesterton uh, was a theologian who used to say one of the most difficult things about our time is that it's a time, remembering that it's a time. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said, uh, you know, sometimes we like to look at the things that the words of Jesus, the word of God with chronological snobbery and to borrow from uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. He says that all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And so therefore, if God is eternal and the way in which he's prescribed for us to live is eternal, then it's all relevant and it's all true. And, uh, you know, I know we can sort of look at this and say, well, Peter was wrong because he's saying the end is near and that was 2,000 years ago, so he didn't get it right. And it can feel that way, you know, uh, from our point of view. I mean, from God's point of view, being eternal with a global life expectancy of 71 years, the end, is, the end has been near for the last 2,000 years. Not from our point of view, but certainly for his. From his. Uh, it, it, for example, um, you know, a couple of years ago, Toronto Raptors go to Game 7 with the Nets. And... Uh, there's 60 seconds left and the Raptors are losing. And the last 60 seconds of that basketball game took 18 minutes to play. And if you've watched NBA basketball, you know it always is that way. How does 60 seconds take 18 minutes? Well, because there's inevitable loss. And so they're fouling, 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 because there's inevitable loss. And in a way, it's like, you know, they're just, they're losing, they're trying to avoid this inevitable elimination. And when we look at human history, it's like from the Bible's perspective, it's saying, you know, there's 60 seconds left. And from our perspective, we're like, this thing is just going on forever. And we look at all the suffering and everything in the world. And here you've got the enemy of our souls, the devil, going around trying to avoid inevitable loss. This inevitable elimination that the, the scriptures have already declared are coming his way. And so from our point of view, it's very long. But here is why we live the, the lives of love. It's motivated by our love for our king. Sometimes Susan and I will run errands together and we'll be out in the car and she'll say, I'm going to run in the store here. Just wait here for me. I'll be out soon. So what do I do? I don't drive away and go for a coffee. I don't get out of the car and, look and say, oh, that woman in that minivan over there looks quite attractive. I think I'll go and start an affair. There's still time before my wife comes back. All of these are insane things. When Susan says, I'm going to be back soon, wait here, I do what she says. I wait. And the reason why I do what she says and I wait is because I love her. I'm waiting for her to come out. The, the object of my affection, the one that I love, she said she'll come back soon. Two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. At any point, at any, at any, any second, it's all true. It's soon, it's soon. And so as we consider this arrival of the judge, it doesn't leave the church frozen with fear. It makes us very active in love. Church, Christ suffered for your sin once and for all. Your judge is your justifier. The judge of all souls is the lover of your souls. Our guilt has been met by God's grace and we now live lives of gratitude. And so we've, because we've been saved by this grace, may we live lives of integrity and of love and in imitation of the one who saved us in grace. May we be bold ministers 
to give a defense of our hope and share this gospel of Christ's grace. Amen. Let's pray.